also was my instructor in how to be a teacher. And uh, we have long life story together. And uh, I love him a lot. And Sylvia's been such a wonderful friend and colleague. And, and also she was a fabulous student in the days when she was a student, which was a long, 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 long time ago. But you'd like tell her to do something, you'd say, she'd be really enthusiastic. She'd say, okay, I'll do that. And then she would do it. You know? <laughs> and not only that, she could do it, which was really cool. <laughs> and so from that, thank you very much. I would like to have a moment of merit to my father, who was, whom I loved a lot, who was a school teacher, who taught me early on that when you get homework, you do it. <laughs> so I had good homework. <laughs> um, you know what else I said last week to this group when I said that I was going to go to this? Did you see this? No, I didn't. Oh, my. Is that too beautiful? That's really beautiful. That's just great. That's at the very, very end. The first, the four women in the front are the ones that have been ordained. Mm, they're all beaming. They're all beaming. Yeah. This is uh, Aya Tadabaloka. Is this very beautiful woman. Number two. Right yeah. here. See. That's just great. She shines, you yeah. know. Seymour went with me to that thing. And he said, you know, she shines, light mm. comes out from her. She does. So um, here was a sort of plan for today. I had a plan for some weeks thinking about that I'd talk about. Well, actually, not for some weeks, because I didn't know until a week ago that I was going. I said this about going. I said, uh, I'm getting to go to this. And I told last week, because Jack can't, Cornfield can't go, and I said, all along, this repeats itself through my life here. I said, but you know, this is the one instance where I have never had a moment of bad feeling about being second string quarterback <laughs> because I have gone to some extremely good things as second string quarterback. I went, re I went representing Spirit Rock. Quilly Powers was also there. And uh, Quilly was taking photos. I have. Uh, uh, two sets of, uh, two CDs of photos to show you. They're probably repetitive. One of them is, is, is the photos that I took. This first one that's in here now is the photos that somebody else took and sent to me yesterday night. So we'll play both of them. They'll probably be repetitive. I thought I would put this into some sort of a context. If I, if I step back for a minute, I want to say, I had a few things on my mind in the last several weeks. I thought about, uh, this is the season and the year. There's something about it. I was glad it was this season. They said they took a long time thinking about it. It's kind of the season of reconsecrating oneself. This morning we made prayers for all the people going back to school. People starting again. Uh, it's uh, Ramadan still. And I read a lovely explanation of one of the functions of Ramadan being that families came together, that it was obligatory now, because you hadn't eaten all day, for everyone to come together as soon as the sun set, to eat together as a family, to recognize together how much their sense of community 
and family and belonging to each other was important to each of them. And that as, just as they had been hungry all day, there are people in the world who are hungry. And to re-illuminate, um, uh, re-fire up their um, uh, intention to serve all beings everywhere. I was very pleased about that particular explanation of Ramadan. So I thought about vowing, because we never use the word vow also outside of uh, wedding ceremonies or consecration ceremonies or, uh, or ordination ceremonies. We, I say, I'll promise I'll see you again. I promise I won't do that again. I don't say I'll vow to do it. Vow is a really big word. <laughs> and that day was full of vowing and bowing. And there's one more thing I wanted to say, which is going to seem off the topic, but it's, it was so meaningful to me. On the way to coming here this morning, I read a very brief article um, about Jonathan Franzen's new book just out yesterday called Freedom. It has tremendous advanced press. And I think the, the, the title is, is appropriate. It's called Freedom. The book talks about how the article talk, talks about uh, the book is a very, very broad look at American families and culture and society. It's a novel, but very vast and deep, the, the reviewer says, in the style of John Updike. This is Upton Sinclair. But it said that Jonathan Franzen has a mind that can hold things in a deeper and wider perspective. Then it showed a picture of his workroom where he works, and it's got a desk in the middle and a little um, uh, 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 laptop computer, which is described as having all the holes for connecting it to printers or internets or photo cameras or other devices. All those holes he has filled permanently with a glue that forms into a cement. He has cut himself off from the internet and everything else that he could possibly do but work in front of the computer, and there's nothing at all in the room. And two days ago when I was up at the monastery and I looked at um, the kuti, that is Ayatadaloka's kuti, you open the front door, it's a maybe seven by nine foot room, has nothing at all in it but a flat bed and a chair. And I thought to myself, both of them, Ayatataluka, in the course of the day, talked about their goal was not to have become a renunciate. Their goal is freedom. Their goal is the mind wide enough to be able to see and perceive deeply and understand fully. And I thought, just having read the two of them juxtaposed, two examples, one in lay life and one in monastic life, of the path to being able to see deeply, profoundly, widely, and perceptively is to have the least amount of distractions possible. These women have made their lives lives of non-distraction, not just one room. But both of the, all of their goals were to be able to see and perceive and teach freedom. So I thought that was a nice, nice place to start from this morning. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I'm going to start. I'll start to show them the, the, the slides, and you can say anything. No, no, I want to. Say, I want to say something else first. <laughs> I, they're laughing because that's unique to Sylvia. Who says I'm going to do this? Says no, I'm going to do something else. Okay, what I'd like to do first is how many years ago did you take vows? So my first ordination vows were. Forty, more than forty years ago. I figured. I told yeah. them he's more than, sixty-five. More than, and gave more, than you a more than forty years ago, um, and uh, the 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 tradition of ordination, especially in a country like Thailand or Burma, where these ordinations come from in India, was that um, you would go to the monastery, and they were both for young men and young women. Initially, you would go when you were young. Um, as a part of the initiation that would ripen you into being a wise person. So there were two options. One is you could go in for a year, which everybody did. It's sort of instead of going to college or something like that. And they said in those cultures that you weren't a ripe person. You were like a green mango or a green peach until you'd spent a year in the monastery um, sweetening and ripening, and then you were ready to have a family or, or, or work in some wise way or, um, or stay for the rest of your life. So that was the other option. You could go in and you say, I, I really, this is my calling, and I want, a, I want that little room with the chair and the bed, and, and I, I just want this kind of freedom. Um, so when you would go, depending on how rich your family was, um, if you had a, a somewhat rich family, you would actually go, there'd be a big dinner and celebration, and the next morning you would go all dressed in white with gold uh, bracelets and gold chains on the back of an elephant to the gates of a temple, and you'd get down and take off the gold and take off everything except one kind of little loincloth or one bottom and top piece of white if you were a woman, and then go in and ask to be ordained. And you reenacted the renunciation of Prince Siddhartha. Um, which is to say that you had everything that the world had to offer you. Um, you had all the things of the world, and you said, yes, this is beautiful, but this isn't the point of a life. The point isn't to get stuff. The point is actually to grow in love and compassion and freedom and well-being. And so I renounce all of this, not because it's bad, but because there's something more important and more meaningful. And then you would go and you, as you'll see in this, although they don't come on elephant back in Sonoma these days, it could happen. They apologized for it when they said the parade of monastics is now going to come in, but we weren't able to arrange for the elephants. There you are. So at least it was there in the imagination in Sonoma. The elephant is there in everyone's mind. But um, then you go and you bow to the elders and you say, um, you know, with, with great respect, um, asking for your compassion. Out of, will you take compassion upon me who seeks freedom? Will you allow me to come and join your community? And that's the beginning of this dialogue that you'll see that goes back and forth with lots of different questions. Are you sure you want to come? You know? <laughs> um, and are you, are you prepared to come? And all of these, this whole dialogue that we'll talk about. And in doing so, then they take you into some sacred ground in the forest monastery. Traditionally, it was way deep in the forest. They would consecrate this ground by sitting and praying in every square foot of it until it was consecrated. And, um, 
and then you would go with the uh, elders and have this initiation and ordination ceremony. And here you'll see it's Sonoma and it's this, this beautiful piece of property and then they do it in a yurt. So anyway, that's, a, that's an opening. So I was for, I was, it was 40, 40 some years ago. Did you ordain alone or with other people? Uh, just myself. Yeah. Was was your was your hair shaved at that time, or was it already? No, it was shaved at that time. You know, the whole I went through the whole thing, except that the family that took me there was not very rich, so I went on a bicycle rickshaw instead of an elephant. You know? <laughs> it just didn't have the same glamour, but in some way it was modest. Okay, you know. Did your parents know that you were doing that? They did. My parents knew. They had four sons. I have three brothers, and they said, "Ah, oh, once a month, that's okay." They had that's once for just once to spare, basically. So they were okay with it. <laughs> That because the mother of uh, uh, <laughs> Ajahn Tanasanti. We lost one. We'll go. Maybe one of the others will succeed. <laughs> one of the you may or may not know that in addition to those three nuns, Ajahn Tanasanti was also ordained. Oh, I didn't know that. Reordained or ordained as or, a ordained? You know, she oh, as a full as a as, as a, bikuni. a full bikuni. Oh, lovely. And that part is uh, she, her name is not even on the program because. Mm. She received an email, or what she didn't receive, uh, Aya Tataloka sent her an email six weeks ago and said, listen, we're inviting you to ordain along with these other mm. women. She never got the email, can you imagine? She arrived the night before to go to the ordination. Uh, and they Aya said, Tata you're Loka up to bat, right? Said, <laughs> said, uh, uh, we're glad you've come. We feel so badly that you didn't want to go ahead and be ordained. What do you mean, didn't want to be ordained? <laughs> said, you didn't get the email? No, I didn't get the email. Do you want to do it? Yeah, I want to do it. <laughs> so they, they had to hurry up and sew her robes that very night. Because you Beautiful. need, she had robes, but you need special robes. So they, all the women in that community stayed up and sewed her special robes. So there are actually four women. And the mother of uh, Ajantana Santi, who I met years ago, 10 years ago, when she was just deciding to take robes, we remembered each other from then. She was in this class 10 years ago, the mother. Sat next to me during the ordination. Uh, Ajantana Santi's mother is a Jew. Uh, and so when they finally said the bestowing vows on Adan Tanasanti, you are now uh, bikuni, uh, uh, and said all the words about it, I leaned over and I said, Mazel Tov, and she said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, and and I, there's another historical piece that's, that's important to know, which Sylvia, you may have talked about. Um, but that is that the order of bhikkhunis, of nuns, did you talk about how it had died out? In I'm waiting way? for you to talk more in depth about it. I mentioned okay. it, but you talk about it now. All right. And so um, uh, at the time of the Buddha, um, at least as the story is told, and one never knows, but since the story is really in the end almost everything that's, that we have, um, we live by stories, amazing stories of, of possibility. Um, uh, the Buddha initially began with man, and especially at that time, and it remained so um, in those cultures. There were pretty patriarchal cultures, and there was a great division of what was permissible for men and women. Um, and after a while, some of the women around the Buddha asked, could not they too ordain? And he kept refusing them in some way and saying, it's not suitable, and who knows why there are various 
explanations that in that culture there weren't there wasn't a kind of safety for women to go and live in the forest. It wasn't considered a suitable uh, way for women to live, so maybe it would bring a kind of disgrace on the whole order. I don't know kind of what all the cultural problems were, but it was clear there were. And finally, the, um, the Buddha's mother who died when he was born, um, the Buddha had a, a, his mother's sister, his aunt, who raised him, who was his wet nurse and, his, and really his, his stepmother. She came... Um, and she got down on her knees, she followed him around and she begged and she said, I, I have heard the teachings, I have realized some of these teachings, and I insist. Um, and he kept saying no, and then his attendant Ananda, who was on the side of the women, Ananda was supposed to be the kindest, most warm-hearted person you could imagine, figured out, all right, how are we going to do this? And he went to the Buddha <laughs> and he said, I just have a question to ask you, O Buddha. And the Buddha said, yes, Ananda. He said, um, is it true that women can get enlightened as well as men? And the Buddha said, why naturally I've always said that. And then he said, if it's true that women can get enlightened as well as men, then is there any reason to not have enlightened women as part of our monastic community? And he somehow wangled his language in such a way the Buddha said, well, I guess we could do it. Um, and they came and they asked three times over and over again, and finally he accepted with some additional rules. And so for about a thousand years, there were nuns along with monks, and it was the fourfold order of, of Buddhist monks, Buddhist nuns, lay men and lay women. After about a thousand years, the women's order diminished and then died out. The rules in some way said you need to have nuns who are elders who are ordained by the Buddha to, and you need monks who go an unbroken stream back to the Buddha in order to ordain. So the, the, the myth that grew in the Theravada countries was, well, there are no nuns, so we can't ordain women anymore which happened to be a convenient ruse for all the patriarchal guys who were very happy to not have to deal with their problems with women, because it was their problems, basically. You all know that, but anyway. Um, so, but then about a generation ago, 10 or 20 years ago, and I remember being in one of our meetings in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama where we were talking about all this, and Dalai Lama, would you please ordain women because there weren't fully ordained women in Tibet? And he said, mm, maybe if the Tibetans, if the Theravadans would do it first, then the Tibetans would believe it because we look to you as being kind of the authentic old school. So he sort of passed it off a little bit because politically he couldn't do it either. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, there were a few wonderful senior monks in Sri Lanka. One was named Ananda Maitreya Mahanayakatera, which is the title for this great one. It was the Ananda Maitreya is, you know, the bliss of loving kindness. And he was a beautiful, radiant being. And he, he decided that there was no reason that this shouldn't happen, but he needed to have official, partly official cover, but also some historical support. And so he had a group of younger monks and men and women do research, and they discovered that while the Theravada Bhikkhuni order from, from Thailand and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Burma had died out, there were Mahayana, that is Chinese Buddhist Bhikkhunis, who'd been there for the last 2,000 years. And what they found in the old records, really old records, was that a 1,000 years ago, 
um, some ships from China had come to Sri Lanka from the Chinese Buddhists to get ordinations for women and that the, all these beautiful temples in Taiwan which and used to be in China filled with rather remarkable practitioners, women who are abbots and very accomplished yogis all trace their lineage back to this ordination in Sri Lanka. And there were documents that were found both in Sri Lanka and in Taiwan. So we said, well, here it is, this door. So they sent a group of Sri Lankan women to the temples um, in Taiwan, maybe 20 years ago or so, to take the first Theravada bhikkhuni ordinations. And they came back and they started this new nuns order in Sri Lanka, which has now grown to about a thousand women. Meanwhile, Thailand and Burma are sort of watching, but the men are going, you know, not and not on our watch. And so, the, but, um, but it's happening anyway. And of course, there's no stopping it once the women start, you know, yay, right? Forget it, it's the, the game is over already. Um, and so there's, there has not been, there's been hardly any Theravada ordinations. There have been a few Theravada um, women from Thailand and Burma who've gone to Sri Lanka, but it hasn't happened in those countries yet, um, nor in North America. So this was quite really historic. This was the first ordination in the Theravada tradition in this continent ever of, of, of fully ordained nuns because there were enough women who'd been ordained in Sri Lanka or, or Taiwan who carried this lineage and it's really the starting of this all again and it's a very it's both historic and it's a really beautiful thing because it made the people who did it enormously happy they'd been yearning to have that little hut with the chair and the you know but mostly to live a life to devote themselves to nothing else but inner freedom so that's a little of the history and just to say on the end of that on this picture and in here these, uh, these four women are the women who were just ordained. The second line are the women uh, who ordained them. The third line is a line of men who came, monks, who came, and they didn't do the ordaining. What they did is the women ordained the women, after which the women, the newly ordained women came across, all the women that came across to the men's sangha, who then blessed them all. So having given them in a sense, an imprimatur, but they were quite clear. They're not the ordainers, and they're not saying it's okay. They're saying we're signing on, mm. which makes a very political, important point, which is why a particular monk couldn't be there early in the day because he was doing something else. And, they said, and so the word is we're waiting for Ajahn Pasano. And so but he came. He came. Yeah. And it, all of this has tremendous repercussions. So you want to see a few, a few yeah, pictures? Yeah, so I don't know this tape at all, because these are not the photos that I took, but they'll probably be much the same. But the uh, projector needs to be turned back on again. But how do you do this? Where is... Uh-oh. Here's Grania. It was on. Yeah, it got tired. <laughs> there, is, um, uh, there is a woman who came here to teach that Sylvia knows uh, very well. She was a professor at the university in in uh, Thailand at the big greatest university there yeah. in Bangkok whose whose grandmother this woman's grandmother was the first bhikkhuni in Thailand for a thousand years her grandfather believed that women should ordain and he was a senior monk and ordained his ex-wife um, uh, and then she was dethrocked or defrocked or whatever it was um, but this this woman who's a friend of Sylvia now um, Damananda 
she said, I'm going to do it again. My grandmother did it, and they didn't let her. And so she has the, f uh, she came here to Thailand, I, I mean, to, to Spirit Rock. She has the first nunnery of this kind. She went to Sri Lanka to get her ordination. And so she's also beginning to change the, and the world. And she's starting to do uh, short retreats with lay women. Short retreat is three months. So. <laughs> A short retreat with lay women in which they take uh, a certain level of ordination. They don't become full bikunis. There's only three months, but they shave their head, they change their clothes. They have the experience of living a, uh, a nun schedule. It's very appealing to me. We'll see. <laughs> I took my husband with me to this ordination, and he kept looking at me and saying, how appealing is this to you? <laughs> 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 That it's very appealing. <laughs> Should I worry? <laughs> so this is Bhante Gunaratana. This is an 85-year-old. This is for the most venerable of, I think, of those. And I've never met him personally until last Saturday. And I said, I bring you greetings from Jack Cornfield. Mm. Oh, it was very nice. I felt very good. Who's next to him? From the Jay? less venerable to the most venerable. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this picture, Bhante Gunaratana is uh, on the far left, and the woman speaking to him is Ayatataloka, who is the abbess of that order of women up in Sonoma County where the ordination was taking place. And I don't know the names of these particular What nuns. Sylvia didn't tell you is that this whole thing took eight or nine hours. It was really cold. I don't know if she said this. It was freezing, <laughs> which is also part of the tradition that it's not necessarily easy. You know, it's windy and it's cold, and you do these vows and these chants, and then you do them over again, and then you do them for a third time. And there's a certain kind of intensity in the, in the Zen tradition, before they allow you to ordain, you have to sit outside the gates of the monastery for two or three or four days, sometimes in the snow. Um, Which Ruth and they, Dennison, who you'll soon see, did. Yes, Ruth yeah. did that. And, and um, the monks, you know, they kind of open the blinds and say, well, okay, we got, got another one out there, we'll see if, how good they do, you know. And if you sit out there all day, in the snow for two or three or four days. Okay, I think we got a real one, you know, maybe we'll let them in. You, there's, there's a way in which that level of determination is required because it's a very demanding thing and they really want to feel your sincerity. You really get the feeling that during the day, you, we, we were asked to arrive before 10, which from where I live, that was a three hour ride. But anyway, you get there before 10, the meal offering, they said, was at 10.30, was actually at 11, and the meal was at 11, was actually 11.30. Things moved in a different kind. They moved in a forest time. Who has a wristwatch in a forest? Mm -hmm. You know, you keep thinking about that. <laughs> and doesn't know what time it is, and then they were waiting. Can you tell us about the child that's in the middle of the picture? The child just happened to be there. He was somebody's child, <laughs> not one of... Not one of those monks. Probably, um, probably. This was supported by the Thai and the Sri Lankan community as well. And, and one of the things about the monasteries is that they're also family places. And so you bring your kids and you bring your parents and you, people go there the and they, they support the monks and nuns and they have a picnic and it's really part of the matrix of the culture. Ah. Uh. Uh. 
This is uh, Ayatatataloka talking to Ruth Dennison. Ruth Dennison has been a teacher of mine way back in the early 1980s. She's 88 years old now. She's uh, really an extraordinary grand dame. Uh, I'm watching her get older. She's teaching me how to do it. Uh, I say, uh, hello, Ruth. I'm Sylvia Borstein, I'm glad to see you. And she says, Sylvia Borstein, oh yes, of course. It takes a minute for her to <laughs> click it in, but then she remembers all the right data about me. And she did that all day long. Someone say, I met you at such and such a monastery. And she'd say, um, oh, someone said, do you know me, Ruth? And she'd say, no. <laughs> and they'd say, well, I met you in such and such a monastery. It was just down the road from here. And it was, the, so, oh, of course, I remember that. That was in 1983. I remember that time. And then she goes on to tell a whole story. Oh, she told this story, which is really important. She said, I was teaching uh, that at, at that monastery, and during the week I got a letter from the, the um, uh, lineage in which I had trained, which is the Ubakin lineage, saying, we suspect that the kinds of teachings that you're doing have strayed too far from, mm -hmm. I, I'm paraphrasing, strayed too far from the straight and narrow. Ruth had invited families to her retreats. We sat in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the dining room with meditators who had brought 18-month-old uh, children with them and were grinding baby food in little grinders. That nowhere in the community were people invited to bring their babies mm. to meditation retreats. She was marvelous. And the list of yogi jobs was babysitting. People took turns during the day. She did what she felt was important to do. She's an old Prussian school teacher, literally. So she said, I got a letter from Uba Ken saying, we think they're straying a little bit from the straight and narrow. And we're thinking of officially a disbarring you, saying you don't have credentials from us. So what do you want to do? So she said, I was there, and I went out, and I sat all night long with a full moon. I sat out all day, and I meditated, and I looked at the moon, and I looked at the trees. And in the morning, I realized I have to be me, and I have to follow my heart. So I went back, and I said to the people, look, I had this letter. I may or may not be a kosher person in the Ubakin tradition. And if you want to leave, you can leave, but nobody left. And that's a, you know, it's, it's such a quintessential Ruth story yes. uh, that you have to follow your heart. I have to be me. This is what my heart says to do. And I did it. So she went to Burma in the late 1950s or early 1960s with her husband. Her husband had gone, he was a psychologist, and he'd gone to meet teachers and to study and maybe to write about it a bit. And she decided, instead of kind of talking to teachers and studying about it, she would actually go practice it. So she went to this monastery and got enlightened or whatever happened to her, something pretty remarkable, um, and came back and her teacher said initially that she was to teach but only women. And that lasted Ruth about a nanosecond, you know, she said, wait a second, yeah, that makes no sense, you know, and that's part of when she was going to get disbarred, and um, she's, uh, she's really quite remarkable. She really... And she has a little retreat center down in the wilds of the desert in Joshua Tree. And some of the new uh, women who are beginning to, uh, uh, the women in white who are beginning to study, are going down to take a retreat with her next week. She's teaching. Yeah. She's fine. Great. Yeah.
This is the inside of the tent where the ceremonies were held. This is inside. Oh, this was setting up the lunch. People brought lunch. These are monks uh, lining up for uh, going to take the lunch. One of the monks, actually one of the nuns, was offered the meal. So that one of the nuns from all this convocation of clergy sitting there, someone came in, the man in white, oh, he was just in the last slide, came in and said the meal is ready. As a surrogate for all of the monastics, the, uh, the main woman there got up, went up, and the, and the routine is you go down that line and each plate, which people have brought all those offerings, each plate has to be individually offered. The person picks it up, offers it, and the person who's receiving touches it. Pick up the next one, they go all the way down, pick up the bread, pick up the butter, pick up everything. And she puts her hands on it, means I accept. And she's accepting for the whole community. So then she goes back down and sits down, and then everybody goes up and goes and fills their um And in, in an bowl. odd way, uh, <clears throat> not in an odd way, but in a... <clears throat> In an important way, this is the most significant rule in the entire monastic order. You think the most significant rule would be celibacy or shaving your head or living in the community, but this is the most important rule because what it says is that if you're if you're a monk or a nun and ordained, you may not eat any food unless it is placed into your hands one arm's length away or less that morning. You can't keep food overnight. You can't be a hermit. You can't grow a garden. You can't cook. The only thing you can eat is what's placed in your hands that morning. And what that means is that the monastic order and the lay community that it's a part of are completely interrelated. You have to live close enough to and be of enough value to that community. And that value doesn't mean that you work in the community, but you have to be enough of an inspiration or enough of a teacher or enough of something that they say, we want to support you and we will feed you every day. And so it weds, from the very beginning in the Buddha, it weds everybody together in the same endeavor. And it's not like the monastics go off, but somehow everybody is in this and they're, they're rooting for you in some way and coming every day to feed you. And it's a really, it's the most moving thing to have because you can be way out as these people are and to have somebody or to walk in the alms round in the morning across the rice paddies and go through a very poor village and have people say, I'm going to give you of the little bit of food I have to support you because I so value what you represent for my life and for our community that I will give you of this food. It's a really beautiful thing and it makes the whole monastic life actually work. I often think that, and this is just a, my own personal little riff on it, that in the story of the Buddha's own waking up, his realization of old age, sickness, and death, and the and the, and the conundrum, the challenge that it, it 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 places, the fourth of the sites that he sees is the site of a monastic, and I think that in addition to whatever work, uh, the, the monks didn't work in the communities, but they were often healers or they give advice. But I think just showing up and representing this way of life exists is 
is, is quintessential to the whole story. So it's another piece of the arms. And, and as a, to piggyback on that story, we're just telling stories today. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, who many of you know, is the senior Western monk in Ajahn Chah's lineage, and he has a big monastery in England, and the, the one in Mendocino, Abhayagiri, is students of his and so forth. When he first went to London with Ajahn Chah, who was also my teacher, back in the 1970s, they were invited and they had this funky little apartment in the west end of London that was what was offered to them. And Ajahn Chah said, are you going to go out with your begging bowl in the morning? And Sumedha said, why? No one will know what I'm doing. He said, you have to go do it. First of all, somebody might put something in the bowl. And beside with, if you don't go out, um, how will anyone ever learn to take care of monks? So he went out and people would stop him and say, what are you, you know, and he'd say, I'm a, I'm a forest monk, but I don't have a forest right now, and I'm, I'm living here. And he said kids would put in candy bars once they found out or things like that, and once in a while somebody who was really hungry would take something out, which was really wild. But um, the other reason Ajahn Chah said you have to go out is because, as Sylvia was just saying, you're the fourth of the heavenly messengers along with old age, sickness, and death, and you have to show to the people of London to remind them that there is a path to liberation. And so simply walking through Hyde Park in your robes is your, because you don't know the next Buddha might be, you know, working in, you know, in, in London somewhere and on lunch break in Hyde Park and see you in that. So your role is to do that. The other thing to finish the story is, so one day he was out there walking and a man comes jogging by and stops and says, what are you? And he says, well, I'm a, Theravada forest monk, and I'm out on alms round, and, and the guy said, oh, well, you know, I have a really nice forest that I've been thinking I don't know what to do with, and it was in the most, it was, it was like Kent Woodlands or something, it was the most elegant part of England, and he got a little piece of paper and wrote, and put in his bowl and offered, can I offer you 100 acres of this beautiful woods to have for a forest monastery, so it paid off, and yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. And the monk, now just to piggyback on that, well, let me get the slides. These nuns are living on 120 acres of incredible forest out in West Marin that are part of a 400-acre piece of land that belongs to a particular woman who, through a certain circumstance, a number of years ago, was able to buy this land and actually lives on it in her own house on another end of it. But she thought, I've loved this land so much. She said this marvelously well. She said, I love this land so much, I thought I would give it some nuns as a gift. <laughs> so she gave it some nuns as a gift, and now they live there. All right. That's fabulous. Venerable Gunaratana. Well, you're looking. Can I ask a question about Donna? So, is that Donna when the um, when they're out looking for food? How does that relate? Yeah, Donna is the word. It has a lot of meanings in in. Um, Pali, but it, it, it means generosity, it also means offerings, it means gifts. So when people go on alms food, they're accepting dana, they're accepting the gifts, which is generally the food that people give to them, which is freely given. And you're not allowed to go and ring the bell and say, do you have anything to eat? You can't ask for it. 
Um, all you can do is be there. And then if someone sees you and wants to feed you, they will. So you have to, there's some way in which you have to carry yourself and remind people of something that's so beautiful that they say, I want to feed this person. You mean the ones who will be living there now? Yes. Um, okay, so here's how it's working, especially coming to the West. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll give you the address. It's okay. You can go up tomorrow morning. But um, you have to go every morning. You can't give enough for two days. <laughs> um, it turns out that the women in white, who are the postulants or the anagarikas, um, their vows, while they eat from a bowl, their vows do not include having to have food offered to them within, they don't have the higher ordination. Their vows allow them to store food and to cook food. So, so in many ways they serve as the supporters, um, in, uh, they serve as the villagers in a certain way. And so the Sri Lankan and Thai and Westerners who want to support them will go and offer to the women in white, say here's a huge bag of rice, here's some stuff for your pantry. Um, because we want your village to have food, and then these white, the women in white, function as villagers and prepare food and offer it to the nuns. They live with them. Oh. This is me saying, I bring you greetings. And Seymour. Oh, yeah, and that's Seymour right behind me. So now you see my husband. I bring you greetings from Jack. Aha, he said, very happy to hear that. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, wow, okay. And Ajahn Pasano has just arrived from um, a Bayagiri monastery up in Mendocino County where the monks go on alms rounds in um, downtown Ukiah. And they stand on the corner, on a certain street corner in Ukiah, and the Ukiah people have gotten to know them and they know who they are and they come and put stuff in the bowl. When, when I lived in Thailand, we went... Um, my family uh, and I went on sabbatical and lived in Asia every five years or so. We'd bring our daughter and go and live in a village in Thailand or a place in Indonesia or just to be in that kind of world and culture and village. And I remember when my daughter was six and we were first living in, in Thailand in, in this village, Boput, and the monks would come by in the morning and, you know, she knew I would be, I had been a monk and so she was excited and she would watch them. She said, Daddy, we have to feed the monks. And I said, okay, well, we'll go to the marketplace and get some food for tomorrow so we can give them. And I said, what do you want to get them? She said, well, we have to get them the best stuff. I said, what's that? She said, well, candy. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we had this big mountain of candy for all the monks who came by, which was her version of giving them the very best thing you could possibly give for a six-year-old. It's actually been my experience that it's a thrilling experience to put, uh, it's hard to explain, but to put food into a monk's bowls. I've done or it. Or a nun's bowl. Or a nun's bowl. When they've come through, when we've had nuns and monks teaching here uh, or at other places, you get to have the honor, if you ask for it, of, uh, of serving. So you get to stand behind the serving line, you take your shoes off, and they go by. And it's thrilling somehow. It just runs through your body. It's a thrilling feeling to be putting this into the bowl. Maybe if I didn't know the whole meaning of it, it w maybe it's not magically thrilling. Maybe it's thrilling because I have the whole picture of it in my mind. But at least for me, it's thrilling. These are 
uh, baskets of rose petals uh, in the front that uh, in the afternoon we came, they had the meal offering, the monks and the nuns took their meals, they ate, then all of the people who came to watch were invited to come take a meal and eat, two of the surroundings, go see the kutis. And then for the ceremony itself, this table was set out with this and uh, a passageway was made for the monastics to process in. And the instruction was, when we say the monastics are coming, stand up, line the road, and people, uh, every couple of people should take one of these baskets from which people will take handfuls of flowers and throw it at the feet of the monastics as they walk in. And it's thrilling. It's, 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 I thought about the fact that it's the cognate of being a flower girl at a wedding. You really bless the ground because it becomes holy ground on which a sacrament is about to take place with something beautiful that's come from the ground. Okay. Is that the beginning again? Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to see the other one. Don't go away. This calls great. This calls for the skill of being able to change. Uh, I think I can even handle it. There we go. did. Why is it making that funny noise? It's just loading it. Okay. <coughs> oh, would you like to read it? I read it. Oh, nice. Go ahead. I, I tried Dear Damodarini, it is an honor and a blessing for all beings that these dedicated women have taken the first higher ordination in North America. Illuminating, illuminating the way... Whoops. Whoops. I know, we're stop. we don't want it to be on play. We want it to be on, I push it and then it plays. There we go. Illuminating the way like a lamp in the darkness, shining like the full moon, spreading the fragrance of the Dharma like sandalwood, rosebay, and jasmine, you offer an inspiration for generations to come to which I, Sylvia, and the entire Spirit Rock community add our full support, joyful good wishes, and anumodana, which means blessings, metta, mudita, vimuti, which means freedom, Jack, and the Spirit Rock community. So. It was, it was uh, an uh, awkward moment. I was about to read it, and I realized I didn't know what vimuti was. Uh, so I said, to, I said to one of the ayahs, one of the, uh, you know, one of the ayahs in that community, Listen, I don't want to say a word that I don't know what it means. I'm sure it's a good word, but maybe I'm just... <laughs> <clears throat> But it won't be with a whole heart. You yeah. don't have to know what I'm saying. So it passed through several of the ayahs mm -hmm. until it found someone who said, oh, that means liberation. It means, it means release mm -hmm. and freedom. Yeah. So then when I said it, I could say it. <laughs> Vimuti means freedom, liberation. So... And, and what you helped, because I know, Sylvia, you collected money for this in, in the, the last class, is 
um, we're, we're offering them heat because it's cold up there. So we're getting them from a number of classes either a big wood stove which they wanted or one of those um, stoves that use uh, pellet stoves or something. Whatever will, will keep them the warmest. And we, bought, and we brought them that big Kuan Yin that's on the right up there. The big Kuan Yin was interesting. The Kuan Yin was bigger than the Buddha that they mm. had all along. Excellent. I that. <laughs> the big Kuan Yin. Good move, Sylvia. <laughs> If, you, if you're going to notice something, yeah. you know, if it matters. And you'll soon see, but this is very important, you'll soon see another Buddha will soon come. Someone else is going to bring it. This is arranging the flowers beforehand. Oh, we are unwrapping uh, yet another present. This is a gold, beautiful Buddha that they were taking the plastic off uh, that was sent by the abbot of a... Um, the abbot of a monastery in Chiang Mai mm. in support of this oh, ceremony. Great. Da, da, da. Lovely. So, <laughs> yeah. so the, the really, really important piece of gesture. So. Where, where is Chiang Mai? In Thailand, in the north of Thailand. She's saying, where should I put her? Should I put her in the middle or him in the middle or where? What, what should, This this is their whole uh, this is their whole operation. This is their kitchen. This is setting out all the food for the lunch, getting ready, getting ready, sweeping. Oh. <laughs> you know, I felt great. The truth is, I felt great seeing that. That gave me a very good feeling. <laughs> I was invited because <laughs> Jack couldn't go. <laughs> she would have been invited anyway. Uh, I think that's actually that true. That is true. Because the true. invitation says yeah. for Jack Cornfield yeah. and Sylvia Borstein. Yeah. I should print that out of my email and yeah. frame that. Just <laughs> oh, and here comes Ruth. And here comes Ruth. Um, this woman was saying thank you to Ruth. She said, "I came. I become a um, an, a, a um, the what do you call it? Anagarka postulant. An, an anagarka postulant, because um, I I came down to Damadina and tra was studying with you last uh, winter, and you said to me, you know, you're a really odd person. You would do really well as an anagarka." <laughs> <laughs> so, that's so um, like Ruth. That's so like Ruth. That's completely like Ruth. On this particular picture, yeah. uh, where it shows all this wonderful sangha, the, the newly ordained and the ordained women and the ordained men, Ruth uh, said, uh, and it's taken no less than 2,225 years to get here. Yeah. <laughs> but Ruth is right there. She's fine. So this woman was telling her thank you for getting me here. There she is. She was one of those people who sat outside a Zen facility for three days in Japan 
in the snow waiting to come in. Ten years ago when we were at um, a teacher meeting in, in, in uh, Devon, in, in, um, in England, in England, at Gaia House, and we went on the bus to, um, back to London to the dedication of Amaravati, and I had a camera and I took a lot of photos on the bus, and there was a photo of Ruth and I sent it to her, and she wrote back to me a thank you note on the typewriter. You can, you can see it's a typewriter. Not so many people have typewriters anymore. It's a very gracious note. She said, I'm very glad to have that photo. Someday, when I'm old, I'll really enjoy having that picture. <laughs> so. And she was 75 at the time. No, right? That's right. <laughs> Not really. Ah, this is Susan um, Pembroke, who is the head of the Alliance for Bikunis. Mm. Does a lot of very, very good work. This, how could I have taken this picture? This, no, no, these are the getting ready to process in. It will be their meditation hall, yes, and probably if it's really cold and in their tents, they'll sleep in there some in the winter too, when it's raining. Four. Four. No, the preceptor was Ayatatoloka, was the, the bhikkhuni. That's Sandy Boucher. No, it's not Sandy Boucher. Sandy Boucher's partner, sorry. There's Tataluka. And when you come in for the ordination, you ask three times, out of compassion, would you allow me the going forth? Would you allow me to be part of the community of those who are dedicating their lives to inner liberation? Out of compassion, would you please allow me to join you, and then they have a whole series of questions that they ask of you. Are you, are you out of debt? Because they don't want people kind of running away from their mortgages, you know. If you're young, do you have also your parents' permission? Um, are you free of some communicable disease? You know, you don't have tuberculosis or leprosy or something because they didn't want the order both to be seen as a place where people who couldn't live in the rest of the society would go as a kind of dumping ground in some way. They were quite happy to take care of people who were sick, but they wanted the, the order to be people who were really capable and able to function and work for liberation um, and to be seen as a kind of, uh, as the best, uh, the noble um, sons and daughters of the Buddha would say, you are really the nobility of the society, so that there would be a kind of admiration. So are you, you're not running away from your life, from, from illness or family or, uh, um, you know, or, or dead or something, but you really come of your own free volition and you choose this as a way of life for the sake of yourself and all beings. And then are you telling the truth? <laughs> They don't. They're, they're in different... Yeah, there's a range of colors that come from certain fruits and trees in those countries. Um, and in the different monasteries, 
Partly it depended which forest you were near. The brighter colors tend to be the more urban monks and nuns, and the darker colors tend to come from certain trees in the forest. This is Ayatataloka, the one that Sylvia said was so radiant. She lives, she had been living in a, in a, a little monastery they made in Fremont in a rented house. Hmm. Dog was in the middle of the whole scene. Oh, I wanted you to see what the weather was like. <laughs> this is the kuti. This is one of the young nuns living in a house in San Francisco, hoping someday to do full ordination. This is the preparation for the ordination. This is me saying my thing with that little card about Spirit Rock's um, offering. Go. <laughs> I'm on pause, alas, go, there you go. I want you to see the flowers. Oh, here's the throwing the flowers. Those are the flowers in my hand. And here they come. Well, Their bowls were yes. on their backs during their ordination, not the whole day. When you come in, um, they, before you go in, um, your preceptor uh, makes sure that you have the three robes that you need, an under robe, a lower robe, and an upper robe, and a bowl, so that you have, that's all you own, basically, and that you carry those with you to show that you're prepared to live the life of an alms mendicant. This is the outside of the step of the yurt. I think that's the end. Mm. When they, I think you said this, but I think you could, you, you know what, instead of that, I was going to ask you, I, I see that it's two minutes to 11. And I was going to, you said that they go and they say, I'd like to, you know, please, out of compassion, will you receive me? And they do. And, they, and there's a lot of chanting back and forth. And part of it I could tell was blessing. Um, and part of it as I, I could tell because I could hear their names. Um, Santi, they would call her Tanasanti Samanera, and then they would call her Arya Tanasanti. So I could hear that she had just been, at that point, elevated to a full bikuni. And then a lot of blessings and a lot of blessings in here about Karuna. And they don't, they go in and then, I don't know if this happened, but usually you go in and you make an offering and then you have to step out, you have to step back. Yeah. Um, 
and and they question you at some distance. Are you ready to really come and join they this community? They do that. They walk out. They and walk they back. Then they come back yeah. in. Then they talk to each other. Then they come and talk to. Her. But at the very very end, what the whole community did together was refuges and precepts. So I thought, you're here. I'm here. Everyone's mm -hmm. here. They know how to do refuges and precepts. We have two minutes. Sure. Uh, do you want to do them in English? No, let's do them in Pali. Mm -hmm. Okay, you lead. I go. I'll do it with we'll you. We'll do it together. So, for those who don't know, this will be, and you can chant along as best you can. We won't do a call and response. No. Um, refuge in the Buddha, which means to see the Buddha in every being, and to remember that awakening and freedom is your true nature. Refuge in the Dharma. Dharma means the truth. Um, to see what's true, to follow the way of truth. Dharma also means the teachings that bring liberation, to follow the path of liberation in your own life. And refuge in Sangha means you can't do it alone, that we support one another and learn from one another. And every moment of your deepening compassion and freedom is a gift to the people you live with and love and community and world around you so that we're completely interrelated in this awakening. Um, and then the precepts are the, the precepts of living without causing harm to beings, the precepts of compassion to refrain from, from harming living beings, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from um, sexual misconduct causing harm through the misuse of sexuality, to refrain from false speech or harmful speech, and to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants so that you live a life that doesn't harm yourself and doesn't harm others. So, Namo Tatsa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tatsa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tatsa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranangga Chami Dhammang Saranangga Chami Sangkang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Buddhang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangkang Saranangga Chami Dhatiyampi Buddhang Saranangga Chami Dhatiyampi Dhammang Saranangga Chami Dhatiyampi Sangkang Saranangga Chami Ditsaranakamanang Nidhidang So now I'll do the, the precepts in call and response because they're a little bit longer and more complicated. Panatipata Veratmani Sikapadam Sikapadam Samadhyami Samadhyami Adinadana Adinadana Vairapmani Vairapmani Sikapadam Sikapadam Samadhyami Samadhyami Kame Sumichajara 
คาเมสุมิคาจาราเวรามานีเวรามานีสิกาปัตมสิกาปัตมสมาริยามิสมาริยามิมูซาวาดามูซาวาดาเวรามานีเวรามานีสิกาปัตมสิกาปัตมสมาริยามิสมาริยามิสุรเมรยาสุรเมรยามัชพมามาชาปามาตัตานหาตัตานหาเวรามานีเวรามานีสิกาปัตมสิกาปัตมสมาริยามีสมาริยามี and this is the five precepts so it goes สิเลนะสุตุสุโกติยันติสิเลนะนิปุติยันติสิเลนะโภคสัมปตา the practice of non-harming a virtue of compassion leads to well-being Leads to harmony among living beings and leads to the freedom and liberation of the human heart. May it be so. Sadhu, 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 sadhu. May it be so. Thank you, Sylvie. That was really beautiful to see. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.